Welcome to Madcasters. You have just tuned in to the difference makers of a new generation. If you're looking for that disciplined effort to change your life, or the inspiration to make a difference in your communities and the world, Madcasters, this is the launch pad for you to go mad. What's going on, everyone? It's your host, Brian St. Louis, BSL in the building once again. And we are here with a new episode of Madcasters. Today, I must say I am very, very well pleased to, to have such an amazing and special guest with us today. We have his name is Mr. Danny Ludman, and he is the president and CEO of Concordus Academy all the way in St. Louis, Missouri. And their mission is to drastically reduce reincarceration rates by precisely executing our holistic, integrated, and evidence-based re-entry program. And I must say, from what I've heard so far and what I've seen, it seems as though things are going highly, incredibly well. And so today we have our special guest, Danny Ludman, uh, with us. Danny, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to um, to be with you today. Um, I um, uh, live in the St. Louis, uh, Missouri region, and uh, I moved to St. Louis about 13 years ago. I used to run a, a very large brokerage firm, uh, and we moved to St. Louis when we bought uh, the firm of A.G. Edwards, and we actually moved our corporate headquarters. So that's how I ended up in the St. Louis region. Oh, that's uh, awesome president and CEO of uh, a brokerage company, had a lot of different names, but uh, uh, starting with First Union Securities and then Wachovia Securities and then uh, Wells Fargo bought Wachovia. So we ended up with Wells Fargo Advisors was a company that I ran for um, CEO for 15 years before I retired in 2013. Wow. That is amazing. And and, and just to add, uh, my last name is St. Louis. I've only been to St. Louis once, though. <laughs> uh, but people always yeah. ask me, you know, if I am from St. Louis because of my last name. But let me ask you this. How does a person of your stature, once the president and CEO of Wells Fargo Advisors, top three brokerages in America, decide to become the president and CEO of a nonprofit organization such as Concordus Academy? Uh, sure. And, uh, if anybody asked me back then that this is what I'd be doing, um, it'd be hard to imagine it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so when I retired, um, I retired at the age of, uh, 56, as I said, after being CEO for 15 years and, um, uh, I got some advice when I first, uh, became CEO that, uh, that, that you really don't want to define your life um, by your work uh, per mm -hmm. se. And, um, and so um, I wanted to uh, do something else. And uh, when I announced my retirement in September of 2013, I received this beautiful letter from a woman who was the chairperson of a very small uh, nonprofit in St. Louis uh, actually called Project Cope, mm -hmm. and uh, they were working with people coming out of prison for about 30 years, um, and so they were looking for a new executive director. So she wrote me a letter, beautiful letter, uh, and the only reason, Brian, I met with her was because um, of the uh, you know the content uh, of the letter. So I met right. with her, and uh, quite honestly, the first time I met with her, and learn more about what they were doing. It um, it didn't really sound like something I wanted to be involved with, quite honestly. Right. Was, I think a lot of it is I think we tend to fear things that we don't know, mm. um, or maybe we aren't familiar with. And I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that now. Um, maybe I watched too many prison movies. I didn't know anybody that was incarcerated. Um, right. And so when I went home and talked to my wife about it, I said, you know, I want to help people in my next career, but this may just be too much in the balance of society for me. Right. But thank goodness, Candace, the woman who wrote me the letter, 
uh, who, by the way, I found out a year and a half later was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. So oh, wow. probably had something to do with <clears throat> the the way she wrote the letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I met with her again because she was persistent. And the second meeting, Brian, is the only reason I'm here today. Mm. And she quoted a, a statistic to me. You know, we talked for a couple hours, but it was this one statistic that just uh, shocked me, which was the fact that 77% of people that are released from prison recommit a crime in a three to five year period. And there's been absolutely no improvement in our country ever since data has been kept, which is going back about 35 years. 77%. Mm-hmm. And wow. I found that to be incredulous. I was very active in the community because of my role. Mm-hmm. I, just, I did not know about this. And so based on that, um, I told her it was just too early for me really to discern what I wanted to do as for my next career. Yeah. But um, there are a lot of things I don't do well, uh, many of them. Uh, you can talk <laughs> to my wife about that. But um <laughs> But one thing I've been, you know, given a, I guess, a God-given talent for strategic planning. Mm-hmm. And so what I told her is that I do a, a very complete strategic plan, but it wasn't really around Project COPE. It was totally geared towards looking at this, what I call the big problem now, 77% of people recommitting crime, right? read a five-year period. And so that's what I did. Beginning in January, we put together a very large strategic planning group. It grew to about 70 people in in total, starting with the governor of Missouri, because I'd moved uh, 1,400 families to St. Louis from my, I'm from Richmond, Virginia originally. Okay. Um, And that's where our headquarters was. And uh, so I got to know the governor. Uh, uh, He was I was the first person on the committee. He was second. Then we had uh, the director of corrections for the state of Missouri was third. I was on the board of a university in St. Louis, mm-hmm. Washington University, and Mark Wrighton, the, the former chancellor, a very good friend. And he uh, provided me with a expert in reentry services from the Brown School, the number one or two social work school in the country. Um and then we had the mayor, the county executives, their police chiefs, a lot of business people. Uh, we had help from Goldman Sachs. So um, we did what you do in a strategic plan. We kind of divided up the work streams, looked at the eight criminogenic factors that are involved with crime. We looked at trauma. Uh, we looked at, uh, you know, public policy, the 4,500 laws that are on the books in Missouri. There are about forty. 5,000 across the country that affects some aspect of an individual being released from prison. Right. Um, and we looked at all the service providers, both in St. Louis and across the country. And Brian, there's really one question that the group was trying to answer, and it was w- using only evidence-driven practices mm-hmm. with proper leadership and adequate funding. Could you materially lower the rate of reincarceration? first in St. Louis, and then export this model to cities throughout the country. And after nine months of intense work, the answer to that question was an affirmative yes. It was unanimous. Mm -hmm. So from there, what we did was we hired the Brown School to help us develop uh, our reentry program only using evidence-driven practices and what that means for people that may not understand that is that uh, every intervention, whether it's a group intervention or an individual intervention, which is really a manual on how you conduct a group intervention, right? they had to pass two tests to be included. The first was they had to meet the gold standard of randomized control trials. So you're actually giving the intervention against a population and you're measuring it, the effects against a population that doesn't receive the intervention, like you would find in, um, um, you know, drug trials, right? You give somebody a placebo, another one gets the drug, and you're mm-hmm. measuring the results. So it had to meet the uh, gold standard of randomized control trials, which means it had to be in place for three years. Uh, it had to have a significant, uh, statistically significant population, 
and it had to show positive results. And so right. RSU actually researched 107,000 of these all over the world. Took them about two years to do this work. And um, putting those two lenses on it, it dropped the number to 1,000, and they picked roughly 32 for us to use. So um, the main point in going into this was that a lot of times – uh, you know, and that's the purpose of a strategic plan, but a lot of times people use gut instinct or they use what they True. heard, bias enters into the equation. And so we studied this problem for two and a half years mm-hmm. before concordance ever came to existence um, and before we even took one participant. And we wanted to get to uh, the place where we were using facts not opinions, not suppositions, to identify why this problem exists. Why does it exist? Why has there been no improvement in 35 years? And that's really what the bulk of the research that we did um, uh, led us to um, understand the the source issue, not, not trying to treat one of the symptoms, but treat the root cause of the issue, and that is childhood trauma. That would be the 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 primary uh, impact that uh, people that are incarcerated uh, have experienced horrific, horrific uh, childhood trauma at a very young age. So, from from research, we're we're hearing this that the fact that childhood trauma is typically one of the major reasons as to why we see the prison incarceration rate um, so high here in America. Exactly. What what was one of the what was one of the leading causes or or, or research that we've that, that you have been able to find as to why the prison incarceration rate hasn't hasn't uh, decreased or hasn't ameliorated in any way, shape or form in the past 35 years? What was one of the major blocks for this, for this improvement? So the research showed this and then, so now we're, we are up to almost 800 participants that we serve. We, oh wow. we take about 42 in a class every other month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ramped up to that level. And so we serve about 250 individuals, but to date, virtually every single individual that 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 we serve of the seven hundred and almost eight hundred now, um, and we do an an extensive amount of assessments when we first enroll a class, mm-hmm. and we enroll a class in prison. So we're working six months with them in prison, twelve months post release when they get oh, out. Wow. First six months, we do intense assessments. There are about 1,500 questions. So we know every aspect of, of our participants, which is the name we use at the Academy. They are participants. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, I like would, that, by the way. what would break your heart is that virtually every single one of them has either been shot, stabbed, raped, physically beaten, or seen a loved one die in front of them, all by the age of nine years old. My goodness. I mean, my wife and I, Susan, had to stop looking at these assessments after the fourth class. It was just too painful. I mean, you'd hear, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a seven-year-old girl who was raped, you know, six years straight by her uncle, or a little boy that at age six was shot six times by his mother's girlfriend, my boyfriend. I mean, stories like that and many, many, many more, uh, you know, a number of people have actually been with somebody and seen them die, a loved one, either of an overdose or an act of violence. I mean, it's just terrific. This is not the way wow. that children ought to experience life. And so, so because of that, Brian, the, the facts that people don't fully understand, I, and I didn't understand them until we spent you know two and a half years researching them. Right. So because of that, because it happened at such a young age, um, roughly 80% of people in state penitentiaries all over this country suffer from a, a significant mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. 83% suffer from significant substance use. 
Mm-hmm. And substance use disorder uh, and the drug of choice, while a lot of times maybe alcohol or marijuana, the, the primary drug of choice we're dealing with is heroin, fentanyl, yeah. crack cocaine and meth in that order. OK. And so because mental health and substance use starts abuse, uh, you know, substance use disorder starts at a young age, um, you have um the median level of ag- education that these individuals achieve is about ninth grade. Um, you, it's a story of the breakdown in the family because many of our participants either bounce around the foster home to foster home, or maybe the more fortunate ones were raised by a grandmother or possibly an aunt. Um, and then you also have, um, you know, poor history of, of, you know, job experience, workforce development. And then you've got the perpetual stigma of being a felon for life. So, so the primary reason there's been no improvement in this country is you're dealing with so many issues and so many issues that can't be solved by, you know, just uh, working on one or two things. It's a it's a complicated situation with all of these factors at work. That's the primary reason there's been no improvement. And the second one has to do with this is not a cause people typically choose to give money to. Um, I think a lot of the opinions are maybe like the ones I had. Um, I think a lot of people think these individuals are um, incorrigible, you know, not capable of change. Um you know, they feel like maybe they did this to themselves and why should they support somebody that committed a crime? Um, uh, there are lots of reasons, but the reentry programs all over this country are have very small budgets. The group that recruited me, I think their biggest year's budget was 250000 That's common. There are wow. thousands of them all over the country that are, yeah. that are doing wonderful things. But the fact of the matter is they're not solving the issue of reincarceration. It's it's almost like the analogy I've used, Brian, it's like a food bank. Mm-hmm. Food banks are wonderful. I'm yeah. a huge supporter of them. I love them. They're safety nets. 90% of people that use food banks are using them temporarily. You only have about 10% that are somewhat habitual users. Yep. They're wonderful. Uh, but food banks aren't solving the issue of hunger. No, uh, they're not. You know, they're they're providing assistance, and that's the same way it is in the reentry space. You got people doing God's work. That anybody that spends time supporting this vulnerable population, and this is the most vulnerable of all vulnerable populations. Uh, my hats off to them. I want to hug everybody I meet that's in this space. But the issue is because of limited funding. What happens is people tend to focus on one or two issues. The number one issue that re- reentry organizations are focused on is um, trying to find a job for somebody coming out of prison. Yep. Second would be housing. Right. And the cold, hard truth of this, and I say this delicately and I say it humbly, mm-hmm. is that in many cases the last thing somebody needs when they come out of prison because if you're suffering from a mental health disorder, you're suffering from substance use, you won't be able to keep a job. Right. So the core of what concordance does, and there are several things that distinguish us, but the core of what we do is we offer 12 services under one roof where we primarily are in the business of healing our participants first. Mm-hmm. So we're a full-blown substance use treatment center. Uh, intensive outpatient services. We have a residential facility all under concordance. Uh, And then, you know, we're a mental health treatment center and we have a lot of services we offer, but, but at the core, we are primarily working on mental health and substance use. Then once they heal, then a lot of our educational job readiness, employment kicks in, housing kicks in, um, because you know and this is and this is all happening inside of the Concordus Academy building all, all of the 12 uh ways that you're looking to help is happening right there and, and there's no other uh places that they need to go to it all happens right there in your building 
one-stop shopping. And that was a, we wanted to ensure Brian, that there was one organization in this country Mm -hmm. that was dedicated to serving only the incarcerated population. We don't Mm -hmm. do the side thing. It's a hundred percent dedicated to, um, we wanted to make sure that we didn't have to depend upon other service providers. So for example, substance use disorder, a lot of reentry organizations may try to form a partnership. Right. But given the severity of the issue, and given that many times people need a residential facility, you could wait six months to get a bed. And wow. given the overdose rates in this country today, you don't have six months. No. Many people be dead after the first month if they don't have uh, proper treatment. And so, mm-hmm. so, and that's the second reason that that there hadn't been any improvement. One is the funding is limited, but a lot of people, because of funding is limited, they try to form these loose associations with other service providers in the region. But that also, the research is crystal clear that that has been a failed proposition when it comes to lowering reincarceration rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm convinced the longer I'm in this, and I've been studying it intensively for now eight years, that while the resources are limited to this population, the bulk of the resources actually go to the 23% that would have made it anyway. So 77% go back, 23 don't. And typically right. the 23 would be heavily skewed to those that don't have a mental health disorder or a substance use disorder. Mm. And there's a great deal of willingness because the other thing that distinguishes us from other organizations is that pretty much every other organization, you have to find where they are, right? You got to mm-hmm. do your own research, find a place, and then most have an application process. So the right. firm recruited me, Project Cope, they had a four-page application process. So you got to fill it out. They had 10 applicants for every one opening. Then you're interviewing the 10 people. So by definition, you're skewing the results to the most willing population. Right. In concordance, you can't sign up to be in our program. We don't take applications. No. Um, And we got this advice early on from Goldman Sachs and uh, from another group called Social Finance, who um, is active in consulting in this space. So with our program, what we're trying to do is get a representative sample of, in Missouri, the 27,000 or so people that are in the 21 state penitentiaries. Mm -hmm. We ask them for a list, and it's not perfect every class, but over the whole year, the 250, you hope it's a good representative sample by age, race, gender, Mm -hmm. history, mental health, substance use, education level obtained, physical health, and type of crime. So- if we need 42 people to form a class, the Department of Corrections may give us 60 or so names that are diverse, you know, mm-hmm. representative sample of people that are going to be paroled in an eight-month period. Okay. And then we send our three interviewers out. And even interviewers, a little bit of a misnomer. What we're doing is we're selling the program. Right. Uh, and they'll talk about the program, getting their consent. And then, um, and then it takes about two months to form a class. And so then we start a class six months before they're released because our services that we offer uh, are six months in length. So we have a clinician and a career educator whose office are the three pr- prisons we serve in the greater St. Louis area. These are the prisons that tend to release the most individuals to the St. Louis community. Um, but it's, it's a lot different because we don't want to, we want to make sure that we're not dipping into that 23% category too much. And so it, you can't totally eliminate bias, but Mm -hmm. it lowers it a lot because the, the probably the typical reaction when someone signs up, I mean, they're not doing backflips, they're not high-fiving, they're not excited. Their typical response is, yeah, I got nothing else going on, going on in prison. I'll give it a shot. And that's right. fine with us. That's fine because what we're trying to do in our pre-release program is we're trying to get to know them. And if you know, and I think you know a little bit about childhood trauma, mm-hmm. uh, it's a very um, 
this is a population that does not trust very well. No, absolutely not. And so what we're trying to do is build ever so, you know, may just be a sliver of trust we're trying to create because people will come to group and individual sessions in prison. Mm -hmm. They're much more compliant. When people get out of prison, it's a totally different story. So we want to build that, that, that bond of trust between the participant and concordance. So when they do come out, they'll continue to come to our program. program. And and the program is, is completely free for, for a participant. Totally free. We actually, um, it's free and we offer uh, a lot of, 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 of free services. Um, so, and also when people come out of prison and they first enroll in concordance, it's just the, it, it, there are various phases that we talk about the first, uh, the, when they get out of prison, they go through what we call um, um, phase three a, which is a six week, extremely intensive substance use disorder treatment program, Mm -hmm. eight hours a day, five days a week for six weeks. I I challenge anybody to find a program more intense than that. Uh, That's a lot. And we actually pay them, Brian, to come. Wow. So think about that. I mean, typically, you know, when you've got a loved one and you're getting them into treatment, you got to pay them, right? Yeah, exactly. And the reason we do that, we pay them what's, it's an $8 gift stipend, mm-hmm. which would be equivalent if you're working to about $10 an hour. It's not a living wage, but it, it's sure. $20 a week, 1280 a month. And the reason we do that is we don't want participants, I mean, they, they don't have any money. And so we don't want them trying to get a part-time job or a full-time job um, because they'll lose it. <laughs> They'll lose it, and they need to be healed first. Right, and, and it's so, an added stress, right? In, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes you know people might get three jobs uh, when they first come out or try to retain. Wow. Them. But but you also, Brian, have the family. So we also spend a lot of time with the families. Mm-hmm. So if you got a mom that can't wait for dad to come home, she's been handling three jobs. She's got four kids, and on average, each of our participants has four children. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if they're 21 or 35. It seemed like they wow. have four children. Still four children. Okay. But with mom working three jobs, she can't wait for dad to come home to help, you know, with all the chores and responsibilities. So we're also meeting with the families and counseling them. And a big part of that is is explaining to them the importance of loving, letting their loved ones heal when they first come out. Hmm. And we talk a lot about temporary inconvenience for permanent improvement. And so the the stipend also helps mom out because if they're getting an extra $320 a week, $1,280 a month, you know, it helps. So maybe she doesn't have to work three jobs. She can work one job then. Right. And then once her loved one heals uh, and then – after the six weeks, we have this progressive program where you're working part time for 12 weeks, still coming back in the academy for mm-hmm. afternoon programming. Then after that, they go full time employment, still under our employment agency. We employ them for the whole year because we require that our participants still do things while they're working full time. So they have to right. meet with their therapist, they have to meet with their uh case manager. They have to meet with their job coach. We have job coaches working with each of our employment partners. Um, And an HR department at one of our employment partners can't really fire somebody for not meeting with their therapist, right? But we don't fire them. But if they don't meet with their therapist, we may pull them for a week Mm. and sit them down and talk about it. Or maybe one of our participants is maybe uh, lost it with one of their supervisors and yelled at them or something. We'll pull them for a week or two to work on, you know, some anger management skills. Right. Or we also drug test quite a bit. Uh, and if they get a positive drug test, we'll pull them from work and maybe they go back through the six weeks IOP or maybe they need residential. So the whole point is healing doesn't occur in a straight line fashion. Absolutely not. So, uh, but that would be the main differences is that that we're holistic, 
we do all services under one roof. Um, we only use evidence-driven practices. And we're trying to, and I believe we've done this, we're taking the best practices of the for-profit space, which I'm familiar with, mm-hmm. um, to the nonprofit world. So we're very uh, process-oriented. And so the analogy I use here, Brian, is if if you were going to open up a Starbucks or McDonald's and you signed the confidentiality agreement, you would receive the manual. Mm -hmm. And the manual, Starbucks, could be 400 pages long. Mm -hmm. The manual is all about defining every single step of the process. So when you open up a Starbucks, everything is consistent with the first one they started in Seattle, Washington, because it's proven to be successful. Right. We have, I don't know, it probably is a thousand page manual. Mercy. That we follow step by step everything. So when we do export this model to other cities, we have the best chance of achieving the same success we've had in St. Louis. And ever since we started, um, we have lowered reincarceration rates by 44%. In in St. Louis? In St. Louis, yes. Wow. And, and we have an evaluator, an individual named John Roman. If you Google him, he's at the University of Chicago, the NORC Group, mm-hmm. which is a, um, a pristine research evaluation organization. And uh, he has said the best he's seen ever is somewhere around a 10 to 15% reduction. My goodness. So he's never seen a 44% reduction. And again, I say all this humbly. Right, right. Uh, the two reasons we've been successful are one, we spent two and a half years researching it, mm-hmm. operating from facts, not supposition. Mm-hmm. And we created this holistic 12 service offering under one roof. And we've been very blessed, Brian, extremely blessed, blessed in the St. Louis community to have extremely generous funders. So I was going to ask about that. How how did this whole thing get funded? Because it's so much to do. You're going to need backers from this. So, yeah. Can you can you go a little bit more into that for us, please? Yeah. Well, before we you know, we put our plan together. And as you know, a plan is just a kind of a dream. unless mm-hmm. you money to fund it. Yeah. And so um, I was fortunate in my position as CEO in St. Louis. Um, I was part of an organization called Civic Progress, which is the 30 largest company CEOs meet periodically. And I got to know uh, just some amazing individuals through that organization, through others mm-hmm. in the chamber. And so when I first started, I went to five of my closest friends that had supported Susan and I from the very beginning, we moved to St. Louis. I mean, just a wonderful display of uh, brotherly love. And those three individuals were Andy Taylor, the Taylor family of, of enterprise in St. Louis, um, David Stewart, who owns the largest uh, African-American run or own business in the world. Uh, third was an individual named Steve Meritz, who runs a very successful company called Meritz International. Uh, fourth was uh, Michael Nidorf, who is CEO of, uh, I think they're in the Fortune 50 now, a company called Centene. And then the fifth was an individual named Sam Fox, who um, just became a friend. He's a former ambassador. He, he, he formed a very successful company called Harbor Group. And so they were my initial five supporters. And then I built upon it from that. So we did two rounds of financing, first three years, which helped pay, you know, the millions of dollars we paid to the Brown School and, you know, the startup expenses you have whenever you start something. And so that was 13 million I raised in the first round and then raised another 18 million in round two for the next three years. Mm -hmm. And that's where, um, you know, we've been more or less refining our trade, improving the model. Um, And now we're ready because of that work in phase three to take our model to 11 additional cities over the next five years. And we've been very blessed there to have a, um, 
one of my closest friends, David Stewart, who I mentioned earlier, yeah. founded Worldwide Technology. I think they'll do 13 billion in revenue. He's the second wealthiest African American in the country, um, and he has generously agreed to help uh, lead a a nationwide campaign to raise 50 million dollars. Wow! That uh, he has tremendous contacts across the country. And we kicked that off in August of this past year. It'll be uh-huh. likely an 18-month process to raise that money. Right. But we, he's put together a list of about 68 co-chairs all over the country, primarily CEOs, who are uh, helping us raise these dollars. That's amazing. Uh-huh. So we've been very fortunate um, to have his um, his backing and then we have another campaign, a more quieter campaign going on with the National Foundation world. Mm-hmm. We have an individual who is uh, helping us lead that. Uh, and we got our first national grant uh, from uh, uh, Steve and Connie Balmer, the former CEO of Microsoft. Um, he's been with Bill Gates from the very beginning. He's got one of the largest foundations uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. And so we just received that about a month ago, but the hope is to raise fifty million from the National Foundation world. And it's important, Brian, to 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 talk about the end game. So, so while we need help from the business community to prove ourselves, which we've done in St. Louis, right. and we need to the business community's help to expand initially, the ultimate sustainable source of funding will come from pay for success contracts with each of the states that we're in. So um, your viewers may not be familiar with that concept. I headed up public finance for a while. um, And I'd say virtually everyone agrees it's the most efficient, effective way to pay for services um, because you only pay if you've achieved a certain outcome that is necessary um, to achieve. So for example, our goal is to cut reincarceration rates by a third. We've exceeded that goal, but simply 10 people come out of prison in St. Louis, seven and a half go back in the first five years, half of them go back the first year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our goal is to cut that to five. We've actually been at four, a full third, seven and a half to five. And the pay for success contract, which we were awarded our first one from a second chance act back in February uh, is to um, the way that would work is, is typically they get paid out over a three year period, but we don't get paid a dime until we've already lowered the rate of incarceration against whatever benchmark we're being held accountable to. So if it's that 10, People come out seven and a half. If we actually achieve the five, which we feel very confident we will, mm-hmm. then that would pay for all of our services, which at scale add up to about ten thousand dollars per person. Um, and that's uh, not every city. You have to do this in every city in order for them to to go through this process. Yeah, to to so so the way we're doing it is to be in twelve cities for three years. The cost is roughly two hundred million. Okay. And so a hundred million of that, fifty from the campaign Dave's leading, fifty million from the National Foundation campaign, that's a hundred. And then the other hundred will come from pay for success contracts from the states. And until we actually show that we can replicate our model, we're not really asking for government funding on our next site. Um, okay. most likely it'll be Chicago. Our hope is that we'll be in Chicago this summer. Uh, but we want to prove ourselves kind of like we right. did Missouri. Um, and then once we prove ourselves there, then we'll actually, uh, we'll be doing RFPs. So if we're, so that would be two locations, one being 10 more. So every year we'd put out some RFPs and have States compete. But a big part of the, the RFP will be, they have to agree to fund a pay for success contract, you right. know, for us to go there. But until we have high confidence that what we're doing in St. Louis can be exported because of our our intense focus on the process and logistics. But until we actually prove that, you know, we, we feel like we want to enter Chicago again humbly 
there are some differences in, in, in the state of Illinois versus Missouri, which you have to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we actually are there and we show that our model's working, that's when we'll uh, proceed with these other 10 locations. So, so Danny, I, I must say this. Um, there, there are, I mean, so much that you've said that has really um, piqued my interest, uh, has also uh, shown me a little bit more about your character. One of, one of the things also that has that has uh, helped me to understand your, your flow is the fact that you mentioned, especially from the beginning, you said that you didn't understand this process. You didn't understand what was going on in the prison systems, the, the, the livelihood of, of these individuals. But you decided to to look into it. You decided to actually see what was going on on that side. And and the only way for you to understand, or any way for any of us to understand, is to try to perceive the perception from the other person's point of view as well. And you literally decided to infuse yourself in this way, learn and understand what was the cause of such a uh, horrendous issue that we're seeing in, in, in the country of America right now. Uh, and, and you're now making a, such a positive shift to to helping the reincarceration rate in in America, dropping it forty four percent in in St. Louis, and and looking to to have this same model right now, hopefully in Chicago and in twelve other cities in the next five years. What I I just feel like everything you're doing, this, this whole concept is, is embodying the the mindset of an individual who should be not just looking at what the problems are, but also understanding why these problems are happening and looking to make solutions from these. And so I, I just have to say, I really commend uh, you as a person, your mindset uh, to be willing to be a part of, of the change, the solutions uh, that we are seeing in, in our societies. And and to see that rate dropping 44% of St. Louis, that's not an easy feature at all. So can, can you can you give us a little bit more as to some of the hardships that, that you um, that you or or also the Concordus Academy have dealt with while this process has been going on? Because we've heard a lot of some of these successes and, and the results. Um, but what have been some of the some of the difficulties that you've dealt with throughout this process as well? Yeah, um, let me. Um, well, I'll give you a couple examples of those, but I want to I want to I want to maybe conclude with something that people may not fully connect the dots on. Um, Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about the problem. We talk a lot about the solution, but the, the, um, the benefits, if you want to look at it that way, uh, or the return on investment are enormous. But I would say the, the, I mean, the most gut wrenching thing for, I think people at the Academy is, um, number one would be we've had a number of participants that have overdosed and died. Um, you know, not a huge number, but one's too many. Uh, and we're very pleased that, that we have people that are trained extensively trained in not only using Narcon, but also using, um, you know, just, uh, CPR. So we've revived a number of people. I don't think one person has actually died at the Academy. We've revived them thanks to yeah. training and bravery of, uh, of our, of our team members. But the most gut wrenching is when, you know, somebody is doing well uh, and then you get a call and they had an overdose over the weekend. Uh, that, yeah, that is just, uh, that's a tough thing. Uh, the most horrific statistic that is, again, just look at the facts is 50% of women that come out of prison overdose in the first week. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So, so that's, again, if you're not focusing on substance use treatment and mental health treatment, um, you will not move the needle at all uh, in this. And so, um, but those that would be the one that has bothered me. Yeah. Uh, and, wow. and also reading these assessments, um, again, I don't look at them as much. Um, it's just horrific. Um, and so a big cause of this, you know, we've talked about it, um, but I would, I would, and, 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 you know, when we talk about 
uh, our campaign that Dave Stewart's leading is called the first chance campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, we aren't talking about second chances because in many, 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 almost all situations, we're trying to give our participants a first chance that they never had. Wow. Yeah. I as, like that. As children. Right. And so there's, it's always wrong. No question about it. It's wrong to commit a crime. Yeah. And we're not making it any better by just understanding the root cause. It's wrong. Mm-hmm. But it does help if you understand what's behind it. Um, yeah, fair enough. Because you can then get at the solution. And but but the connection here, and so and and also not one of our participants has said they never did it. So I don't necessarily, and this may be controversial to some of your um your listeners, but um they did it. I mean, they stole a car, yeah. robbed the store, whatever. Um, and, you know, I'm not opining on, I don't think a lot of people think prisons reform individuals. It's a consequence. And going back to the days of when God anointed Moses as the first judge, um, there are consequences for one's actions. And so today in our society, you know, you commit a felony, you go to prison. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, but the, so I don't, and, and clearly there are policy reforms that are necessary. That mm-hmm. I agree. But the policy reforms, I don't think, are going to put a big dent on crime, right. uh, on reducing crime. Um, so what I see as the biggest injustice, bar none, is that you cannot deny, and this is really why Dave Stewart stepped up, and I, I'm, I'm just, forever beholding to him mm-hmm. because he wields a lot of influence. And the reason he stepped up is you cannot deny that after hundreds of hundreds of years of racial bias, whether conscious or right. unconscious, has led to the devastation of thousands of primarily black and brown communities all over this country due to racial inequality, poor yeah. schools, poor housing, uh, crime, drugs. And so these, these neighborhoods all over this country have literally become war zones. You cannot pick up a paper without three or four people being murdered in these communities. A lot of it's gang related, a lot of it's not. And so, you know, so that is what has led to the trauma. I mean, you pick up, I mean, I could, every day I hear or see Christmas day in St. Louis a young mother and her two-year-old daughter were shot in a car by an ex-boyfriend in the head, murdered. Um, and I think about that all the time. I mean, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. And so I challenge corporations, I challenge individuals, I challenge governments to come up with another way that would have a greater impact on healing because this journey that, so there are 100 million people, Brian, that are affected by mass incarceration. There are 30 million felons, mm-hmm. approximately. That's the estimate today. And if you just count mom and dad, son and daughter of those 30, it adds up to 100 million. So if you just quantitatively look at it, not taking a qualitative lens, mm-hmm. it's the third greatest societal issue of our times, only followed by poverty, number one, and disease you know, cancer, um, et cetera, uh, then third would be 100 million people affected by uh, mass incarceration. So the joy that I receive from this is that when our participants come in and we heal, Mm -hmm. then they get part-time employment all within the agency uh, under the concordance umbrella, then full-time. Then we provide, we've got partnerships with seven low-income housing developers, four national, three. There's no background check, no credit check. If you're a concordance participant, you're in. The average rent is 500. It represents 10,500 apartments in the St. Louis area. They're beautiful. The rent wasn't subsidized. It'd be more like 900 a month. Um, And so they have uh, wonderful housing. They become role models and they achieve many, many, many achieve middle-class income status. And so we're, and then when mom or dad get reunited with their four children, Mm -hmm. they can prevent their children from having the same experiences they went through. And so you literally are ending the cycle 
This yeah. cycle, I mean, I, one of our participants in our women's prison, we serve two men's, one woman. It's called Vandalia. Um, uh, she was in prison. She went to prison 17, got out 19. She was a participant in our program. She was in prison with her mother, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother. They were all in prison together, four generations. And so they're, so it's a source issue. So we're not just healing, you know, the, the 30 million felons. Right. We're also bringing back to their families and ending this absurd cycle. There are 10 million children today that have one or both parents in prison and they have something like a 60% on the prison themselves. And so, so it's, it's, it, you know, it's doing more than, than just healing the participant. It's reuniting families, healing whole communities. And the most astounding other stat is that there are approximately 45 million African-Americans in this country. Yeah. 45 million. And if you took that population and put it in the size of countries in the world, it would rank 30th, 30th largest country tied with this country of Spain to put mm-hmm. it in perspective. So we're talking about a pretty big population. Yeah. And of the 30 million felons, 12 million are African-Americans. Yes. This doesn't just happen because, you know, it's not random. This has happened, yeah. right? It's not yeah. a coincidence. This has happened. It's because of these hundreds of years of racial bias, and we need to own up to that. Um, and I appreciate so, you making that statement, too. Uh, I, mean, I appreciate you understanding that whole grand uh, scheme that, that that has happened, that has caused a lot of the uh, racial bias, as well as the high uh, um, incarceration rate in the African-American, the black community here in America, because I, I feel as though many people sometimes gloss over the the history as to why certain things are happening. And the mere fact that you're acknowledging and also uh, helping in that regard, that definitely it, it gives me um, a breath of fresh air to, to know that that people are. Are, are looking to to really change the way that uh, that things are being seen, and so I, I think that's highly incredible. I think that's that's um, it's, it's in, so imperative uh, for us to 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 point pinpoint uh, with everything that we're talking about in this conversation as well. Well, thank you, and it's it's been rewarding, personally rewarding to me, not only see our participants heal, but also, I mean, we have these. We had to stop them temporarily, but we have these uh, Thursday night family suppers, and it's just, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've missed one of those. That's nice. Because there's just something about bake, breaking bread together. And so when we have these family night suppers, our participants come, they bring their families. It's wonderful to uh, meet their children, to meet their wives, to meet their parents. And what's cool is we have a number of families that come while their loved ones are still in our six month pre-release program, while they're still in prison. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's wonderful to see. And, but let me just end with the downstream impacts of, of if we can continue to take this program to other cities, mm-hmm. there are a couple of facts of, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of people want to know what's in it for them. You know, a lot of people are sure. involved with us because their hearts are, are really connected. Um, but the facts are, in kind of rapid order, 55 to 60% of all crime in this country are committed by formerly incarcerated individuals. That individual that shot his ex-girlfriend, two-year-old, and six weeks ago, same thing happened, except it was a young mother, ex-boyfriend, and her daughter, who was six, shot him in the head, killed him. Um, both of those individuals had been released from prison five months earlier. Wow. So there is nothing... An individual, a government, or corporation could do that have a greater impact on lowering crime, improving public safety, um, than allowing concordance to do what it's doing, you know, at scale. Mm-hmm. Second, um, the uh, the uh, the mon- the most unemployed population in the country are formerly incarcerated individuals. Those thirty million felons. The Federal Reserve in St. Louis is actually putting together some estimates for us 
but I would venture to say 60, 70, 80% have stopped looking for work. They're discouraged workers. So they're not in the workforce. If we can heal them, get them back, train them, get them into high paying jobs, mm-hmm. you could argue that that could have the greatest economic impact in this country on GDP bar none. That's number wow. two. Number three, the biggest user of social services from United Way agencies in this country are families of incar- that have their loved ones incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, largest number of overdoses in this country. Last year, New York Times did an article, more overdoses than ever before are formerly incarcerated individuals. Largest homeless population in this country, bar none, are formerly incarcerated individuals. I talked about the 10 million children yeah. uh, that are out there. So it's not just, this isn't just about helping the 30 million felons. This is about helping the whole society and yeah. restoring communities. So you don't have to, you know, and the trauma for our participants, you know, unlike P- PTSD, which, you know, people that have served in the war yeah. experience, and it's horrific. Um, but unlike that, our participants, when they come out of prison, they're still affected. We have many participants whose sister, you know, was shot and killed, you know, two months ago. It doesn't go away. Right. So the goal here is to have a program, holistic program that's very organized, that can scale so that eventually we want to be in every state in the nation um, to be able to heal entire communities. I talked about the black population, but the brown population is closely behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there you would have um, probably somewhere around 7 million felons would be brown and then the rest would be white. But disproportionately, forget about proportionality, the absolute number of people that are in prison Absolute, not relative, are mm-hmm. African Americans. Eighty-five percent of our participants are African Americans. Wow! And um, do you, you know, do you have be, with that number being so high? How, how is your em- employment with uh, within Concordus Academy uh, dealing with that African American population? You mean from a standpoint of our employment partners, or or? Uh, coming, coming more so from from the from the concept of, of representation, because we know that uh, a lot of times it's good to have someone that can look like you that you're seeing as successful or helping you through that process. And so, how, how many um, African American employees or oh, I got you, yeah, or diversity employees do you have working for Concordance yeah. Academy? We have, um, I think, the number is about twenty two percent of people of color at Concordance today. Um, we also hire individuals that have similar life experiences, either they're grateful recovering alcoholics or addicts, or they have actually, uh, have served time. And so, uh, and so we have, we basically have two groups of people at the Academy. We have those that are actively working with our participants mm-hmm. and then I'd say the other groups are administrative. Um, so HR, finance, technology and whatnot, but the, groups that are actively working with our participants that have similar experiences is probably closer to 50% would be uh, either people of color or have had similar experiences with them Um, because it's, you know, it's, you want people that have literally walked in their shoes. Right. That's where our alumni network comes in too, because, you know, when you've got a 24 year old who has successfully completed our program, um, you, um, you know, their, their credibility, you know, is immense. I, I think you're right in that a lot because it's always good to have someone who has gone through the program and can say even just by their own experience, how they have succeeded. Do you have any other experiences with, with people who have successfully gone through your program at Concordus Academy? Sure. Um, there are many of them uh, that I could report on. I'd say the um, there's one individual that um, 
um, kind of sticks out in my mind. Um, uh, he's become a very good friend of mine as well. Um, one of our earlier participants, uh, Clarence, where he, um, uh, he did, a about 14 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, uh, standout, uh, student, uh, uh, captain of football team, and he got involved in some gang-related activity over the summer between his junior and senior year. Um, he came out. Um, he ended up uh, marrying his childhood sweetheart, which was cool. Um, I actually went to his wedding. Um, he, uh, uh, you know, got uh, in employment through our employment agency and he's been promoted several times. He's making about $60,000. Um, I, um, uh, he also, uh, pursued his, uh, education. I went to his graduation for that. Uh, he's had, uh, he has a little girl now who's three years old and he would be one of the many examples of somebody who did the hard work, I mean, we talk about what we do, but we also have acknowledged that it takes an awful lot of perseverance uh, on behalf of each of our participants. And when we talk about our goal, ultimately, it's not just to keep people yeah. out of prison. It's about allowing them to have joyful, abundant, and purposeful lives. That. And he's a, he's a deacon in That's his awesome. church. Role model in his community. He's helping mentoring many, many other uh, children now, not related to concordance, but just in his community. And there are many, many people like that. And he's just uh, just a wonderful example of um, of 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 you know what can happen. Uh, you know, if you apply yourself, and and he gives an awful lot of credit to his, what he calls his second family concordance, because he feels very welcome yeah. there. Um, and he is in many respects, when I got involved in this, Brian, it was kind of a head thing for me. I'm a problem mm-hmm. solver. I saw the problem. I wanted to solve it. But through my association with Clarence, it became much more of a heart thing for me. Um, and what we talk a lot about is there's nothing wrong about having a head thing or a heart thing. You know, you'd like to have both. But the reason we've been so emphatic about putting processes in place and being systematic and handling all the logistics just right is that, quite honestly, people need more than our hearts. They need our full selves. And what we're trying to do is not just heal the mind, not just heal the body, but we also are trying to heal the soul. We have a a chaplain at the academy who's doing wonderful things. Um, with our participants, because we didn't want this to be viewed as just some other self-help course. That all it is put pull yourself up by the bootstraps, see what you can extract yeah. from life. But it's more about what you can contribute to life. And what we find is that our participants, because they're grateful mm-hmm. for having that first chance, they're grateful when they're employed. They make some of the finest workers. Um, and in every case with our employment partners, we basically say, if we can't have our participants perform at the level that you're seeing with your hiring on your own efforts, then you ought to fire us. And to date, every one of our employment partners with our participants as, as uh, employees at their organization has surpassed their own rate. And a lot of this has to do with the loyalty that people feel that somebody reached out to them and gave them an opportunity that they might not have had. Amazing. So it, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, but I'm just very grateful to um, the work of our participants, the talented team members we have, the support in the community, both financially and from our employment partners and our low income housing providers, our legal partners, as well as our uh, healthcare providers and I'm most grateful to um, to God. None of this would have happened. Um, you know, we just played the part he assigns to us, and this is where he has me now. 
and uh, I'm just grateful to be a part of it. That's awesome. Danny, I just really just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the Madcaster show. Uh, once again, this is uh, a man who, who you are an individual who has completely embodied what we're trying to do here. Someone who sees a problem in our societies and has taken the the, the lengths and the, the time and the desire to truly make a difference in our communities. And truly, we've known for so many years that the reincarceration rate, the incarceration rate in America has definitely been a, an issue. And to see someone like yourself who's pulled so many people together uh, to find solutions to this has definitely been such an amazing uh, uh, story, such an amazing um, journey. But but also, I'm looking forward to the future as to how um, Concordus Academy is not just helping right now, but how it's going to help revolutionize America. And so I just want to say thank you so much uh, from the bottom of my heart for, for being on this show and, and for helping us to understand more so about the Concordus Academy. And um, is, it, is there any way in which, uh, leave with one more question, is there any way that we could uh, reach out or help or don't like what what could we as listeners do to help Concordus Academy as well? Well, there are two things. One is to pass the yeah. message just um, to to there's so many myths out there about uh, what's going on with the population. So having ambassadors that just extend the message would be a wonderful mm-hmm. help. Um, and certainly as we go to location, location, other cities, um, having support there would be helpful. And certainly, um, you know, we're always, um, looking for more funding. So, um, uh, a way they can help too. uh, concordance academy, uh, org, I think is our webpage. And so, uh, people can look up and find out more about what we're awesome. doing there. I'll be sure to, to let okay. many people know and, um, and keep spreading the word about the Concordus Academy. Thank you very much, Danny. We really appreciate your time. And, uh, Thank you, Brian. Now, I commend you for what you're doing, this whole uh, approach, why you're doing the podcast, um, you know, is a uh, 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 just a wonderful calling that, that, that you, you have. That. So thank you for inviting me. I appreciate okay. that. Yep. You have too. a great day. Bye. Stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Madcasters. Please leave a positive review on the show if you like today's episode. And be sure to follow us on Madcasters at Instagram and also Madcasters on Facebook, where you'll be able to get updates, surveys, and many more surprises. Please go to madcasters.com where you'll be able to access the shows, blogs, and book reviews. Also, spotlights of organizations that you can support and donate to as well. And if you would like to support Madcasters even more, please go to our Patreon page. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Madcasters. I'll be giving out a free book monthly to one of our Patreon supporters as well. And there are many more surprises to come for all those who are Patreon supporters. This is the end of our episode, but this is not the last. I promise you, Madcasters, we are about to have a blast. But don't forget, Madcasters, this is the launch pad for you to go mad.